0: Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? Fuck it all! No
1: commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and of course at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. This is BOA Audio Season 9, the first live edition of the program here on Season 9, only the second episode of Season 9 so far. We are live tonight here with a fantastic guest, my friends, and uh, I finished this book about two hours ago and just flew right through it over the last couple of days, absolutely loved it. Titled Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops and The Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream, written by our guest tonight, Dave McGowan. Absolutely love this book. I cannot put it over enough. Uh I'm actually going on vacation next week and uh as I was started reading the book I was kinda kicking myself to having scheduled this interview tonight because I was like, man, I wish I had put this off another couple of weeks. I would love to have this on vacation and read it while I could just sit back and relax. That's how good it is. It's really fantastic. So I'm looking forward to talking to him tonight here on the program. Dave McGowan, welcome to BOA Audio.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me and for that uh, glowing uh, introduction. (laughs) Oh, man, I totally mean
1: it. I totally mean it. I absolutely love the book. I thought it was fantastic. I really, really dug it a lot. It Seems like I, I checked your website, and folks should check that out. It's at uh, www.davesweb.cnchost.com. Is there a better uh, URL than that, or is that your main main hub?
2: Uh, unfortunately, that's the main one. Yeah, that's where it's been for many, many years now. I, I should probably, uh, I should have gotten my own domain a long time <laughs> ago, but uh, I never, I it's I all did. good. It's
1: all good. Well, folks can check out that it's at uh, Dave's web.cnchost.com it seems like kind of a labor of love cuz you were sort of putting this all together over the course of uh it seemed like like a you know o- over time a serialized almost at your website right
2: yeah i mean you know i never really envisioned it as a book to begin with um it was just sort of a an interesting diversion um you know i mean uh, like you it's funny you were talking about taking it and uh, reading it on vacation cuz that's that's where the inspiration for it came from me for me actually was um taking a book that i thought was just going to be you know some real light you know escapist entertainment just you know kind of shut my brain off and uh, lay out on the beach and you know reminisce about uh old times and whatnot and, and instead it ended up uh inspiring this this entire uh book and um but originally i i thought i just envisioned it as being just you know a couple few web posts as a diversion from whatever it was that i was working on at the time and then it just really took on a life of its own uh the, the first few installments i put up proved to be like probably the most popular post that i'd ever put up on, on my website in all the years i've been doing this and uh And then I started getting feedback from readers and tips and, you know, people directing me to, to other, uh, you know, resources and, uh, you know, just continued to read further and further into it. And, and it just grew and grew and grew into this very, very, very lengthy uh, web series. And then I started getting offers from publishers to put it out as a book and uh, which I was very skeptical of at first. And, and, uh, but you know, it did eventually uh, morph into a book, and um, yeah, and and, and it, it still seems to be, it still it's a story that really, really seems to resonate with a lot of people across, you know, a lot of lines. You know, I mean, across, you know, uh, you know, political lines and gender lines and racial lines, and and uh, I mean, just you know, people from all walks of life really seem to uh to find something of interest in this story and uh it's it's been it's been very humbling and and uh and, and very gratifying you know to to see how well it's been received and how well it's been doing after all the uh the many many years of work i put into it and you know i've been doing um, direct sales through my website um which which I'm still offering by the way for any anyone that wants a signed copy can uh go to the 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 uh davesweb uh Com website and uh and I have them available there but uh I mean I've I've sent books out like all over the world you know I mean to just to South America you know uh, Brazil and Colombia and and uh, all over Europe and the UK and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand and and just I mean uh, all over uh, Scandinavia and nice nice it's just it's it's amazing to me you know I mean the countries that like non English speaking countries I've shipped several to to Germany and just in Spain and. Just all over the world, and it just—it's—it just amazes me uh, how much reach you know this uh, this story seems to have, and, and how much it seems to resonate with with so many different people from so many walks of life.
1: Yeah, dude, it's a great story. It's really—it's—it's uh, it's vast. That might be the best way to put it. It covers a lot of uh, stuff. There's a lot of different people. It's very uh, incestuous no multi on multiple layers really but but there's a lot of uh you know paths get crossed left and right in this book it's tremendous stuff now we generally start
2: the show yeah, the, there, oh, a, go ahead i was going to say yeah there is a lot of information a lot of facts and figures and dates and places and names and all that and uh it, it was it was very difficult to uh to organize into a coherent book, you know, cuz it's a story that's just sort of constantly circling back on itself, you know, like you say there's so many threads and so many so many levels of connections between these people and places and stuff that it it's a very hard story to tell in in, in a linear fashion, you know, cuz it's just it's just a constant series of loops.
1: Well, you generally start the show out here with a little bio background. So, uh,
2: give us a little, you know, who
1: is Dave McGowan and how did you get interested in all this? in the first place you know you've written uh, other books that are Gannon. kind of you know different of, of a different vein but also sort of within the same
2: realm yeah this is my this is my fourth book and and uh and then I have several uh, like book length uh series on on my website that uh people have, have asked me if I'm going to turn into books and that, and there's been more and more interest in now that this book has has done so well I've been approached by publishers who who've wanted to uh you know talked about uh possibly uh publishing some of my earlier work as books but um the dave mcgowan story well i i am a suburban kid from torrance california born and raised uh and i was alive in the 60s when this story this story basically takes place from the like the mid-60s through the mid-70s was really the the heyday of, of the laurel canyon scene and uh and I, I was alive and living in L.A. at the time, but very, very young and, and not at all aware of uh, of any of that that was going on. But I am I am a native L.A. son and uh, a graduate of uh, UCLA. And uh, for the last oh gosh, thirty years or so, I have been um, a uh, small business owner i'm a general contractor basically that's that's what i do in my my uh my alter ego <laughs> in my 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 normal mundane day-to-day life i am a general contractor uh, primarily doing uh doing remodels of uh medical and dental suites and uh, but i've always had a very keen interest in in politics in and the, and the darker side and uh you know quote-unquote conspiracies and uh have uh you know followed that stuff for years and and really much more so in the last like 15 20 years since I discovered the internet in, um uh, I don't know back in like 96 97 or something when when it was still a fairly new thing out there and uh, that just opened all kinds of new doors for me and new resources and uh, you know new sources of reading material and uh, around, I think, like 98 or 99, I put up my own first website, um, which eventually morphed into my first book, Derailing Democracy. And, and uh, so then I put up a bunch of new stuff on my website, which morphed into my second book. And and ever since then, I've just basically been, been – uh, you know, running my, uh, administering my website and posting stuff there. And uh, occasionally uh, what starts off as, as a series of web posts will end up as a book. Um, so um, although there, there was a very large gap between the, the last two, the before that, the last one that I put out as a book was in 2004, I think, or 2005. Program to Kill, which was a sort of an alternative look at the uh, phenomenon of uh, serial killers, and then um, and then this one was my most recent one, just uh, last year, 2014. So there was almost a 10-year gap between uh, the third book and the fourth book because I was I I kind of. I got very discouraged and, and kind of came to the conclusion that, that people don't really buy and read books anymore, which unfortunately is kind of true, you know, and Yeah, yeah. A lot a lot of people have the attitude, well, why should I buy the his book when I can go elsewhere and get the same information for free on the internet, you know? And um so, you know, books uh didn't, you know, seem like they were kind of a dying commodity and I got very disillusioned and discouraged with the uh Measly royalty checks that I got off of my first (laughs) few books and I just decided I was just, you know, that it was more important to, you know, I wasn't really making any money off it anyway. And it, it was more important to just get the information out there to as wide an audience as possible. Yeah. So uh, for the last ten years, I've just you know done everything on the internet, and you know I have a lengthy series on 911, a lengthy series on the Boston Marathon, and on the Apollo moon landings, and on the Lincoln assassination, and and had this one on Laurel Canyon, and and various other things, and um, and yeah, I, I was pretty much through with the book publishing thing, but uh, a couple of publishers uh, convinced me that. Uh, that this book would be marketable and have some lags. And, and apparently they were right because it's definitely done much better than, uh, than my first three earlier works uh, did. So uh, oh, it's, yeah, fantastic. Maybe I'll, uh, it's
1: really, uh, and, and on your website, there's tons of stuff I want to dig into and look at. So we're probably going to have to get you back on the show in the future. Cause uh, it's funny in my notes here for stuff, potential future shows i have uh lincoln assassination conspiracy and then i see you have a whole bunch of stuff on there about lincoln so
2: it's like uh we may not
1: probably won't get a chance tonight to talk about it but it's definitely something i want to dig into in the future with you
2: that that's my latest work as i'm going as a work in progress and i don't know how long it's ultimately going to be but uh it's a case that's really just uh fascinated me for the last well for several years really i i've been i've done research on it before and and uh never really put it put it together into anything and and just within the last year or so i've i just i've uh, been uh been getting it out there and uh fascinating story it's it's just, it's amazing to me how little is actually the general public and even the cons- the quote unquote conspiracy community knows about the uh, the Lincoln assassination and and uh, how much of what we accept is as uh, the you know uh, you know the, the absolute truth is uh, doesn't appear to actually be you know and uh, it, yeah it's it's a fascinating case so um, yeah I've stepped back a full hundred years from from 1965 to 1865 which kind of surprised a lot of people. Like, wait, what are you doing? Way back? Then? Yeah, yeah. They're like, I thought you were gonna do
1: the '80s next, man. <laughs> yeah,
2: because I, I been, cause I'd been focused a lot on the '60s and early '70s uh, with both the Laurel Canyon and the Apollo, which you know both took place in, in that same time period, and uh, so I, I, I'd, I'd been focused on those for many, many years, and then all of a sudden I step back a hundred years. But like I say, it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating to me how much. There is that uh, you know that, that people just are not, even after 150 years that people are not aware of you know I mean there's there's all kinds of uh, Kennedy assassination experts in the in the conspiracy you know community I mean there's there's people who can talk to you for days about all the minutia of the Kennedy assassination and the aftermath and you know uh, but but there really aren't. Uh, it, there really aren't in, in regards to the, uh, the Lincoln assassination. I mean, even people in the conspiracy community don't really know much beyond, uh, you know, John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln in Ford's theater. And, you know, 12 days later was killed at Garrett's barn. Right. Right. Um, but there's just so much more, so many interesting threads and inconsistencies and, uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm, and like I say, I'm, it's it's still a work in progress. But yeah, when uh, that wraps
1: up. Let me know, dude, because I'll get you back on the show to talk about that stuff. Definitely,
2: and oh, um, you know, I, I, it's you know, people even if, if you think you know the Lincoln assassination, uh, I would highly recommend that you drop by and, and take a look at my my series and what's up there already because uh, I think you'd be very surprised to find out how little. Uh, you know the American people actually do know about the the Lincoln assassination. I can guarantee you, I don't know anything about it. So we're <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm looking forward to digging into it.
2: The fascinating thing is, is how little things have changed in 150 years. You know, I mean, you see these same patterns and threads, and you're thinking, "Wow, this, this, there's nothing really new under the sun." <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just they're just playing out the same script, you know, over and over and. That's... Yeah, I you mean, know, in a lot of ways there's just there's so many parallels and uh to things, you know, going on now, you know, the the stuff that people are, you know, looking into in, you know, more recent times, it's uh it's, it's just mind-boggling how uh you know, how how much uh, of, you know, how 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 how, how I mean, they, they because they become much more adept at 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 lying, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but 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 the nature of the lies hasn't really changed, you know. Just uh, they're much more sophisticated in their telling nowadays. But uh, but the basic techniques, uh, you know, haven't haven't really changed.
1: Well, anyway, that's uh... (laughs) that ain't that the truth, man. Well, and you say there's nothing new under the sun, dude. But I got to put you over here. Weird scenes inside the canyon. That is some amazing new stuff that I hadn't really ever dug into, you know. Uh I, I've I've delved into the conspiracy realm and obviously uh into the paranormal realm and stuff, but this is like a whole different area of material that I would never really you know, I'd never really considered before. And and um I guess forgive me, what made you stumble into you said you grew up sort of this time you know, you were growing up as a kid then, so you weren't really sort of in the mix of it all. But you know, what made you look back on all this and decide to start writing about Laurel Canyon, the sixties, the seventies, the counterculture, and and really what the meat of the whole book is about?
2: Michael Walker's book, Laurel Canyon, which is a very mainstream uh, telling of the the Laurel Canyon story, and um, which I took with me on on vacation quite a few years ago, and. And, and you know, like I said, it, it was intended to be an escape, you know, from, from the madness because, you know, in my real life, I, you know, normal day-to-day life, I I delve into a lot of dark topics. And, right, right. You know, but I was, I was going off on vacation to try, you know, I'm just, okay, this is the perfect book to just, you know, lounge on a tropical beach and just sort of, uh, you know, turn my brain off and and uh remember all this great music that that really provided the soundtrack you know to my youth you know i was you know very much a fan of of all of that uh, yeah. music growing up and um but you know as i started reading this book there was like a lot of stuff that he put in is just kind of little throwaway facts is like these little you know insignificant little interesting but not really you know relevant facts just uh kept jumping out at me like, you know, at one point he mentioned just in passing, in like one sentence, you know, he uh literally, you know, in parentheses just parenthetically he throws out, Oh yeah, one one thing that didn't seem to quite fit in with uh, you know, peace and love vibe in Laurel Canyon was the top secret uh US Air Force installation covert US Air Force installation right in the middle of it. Right, right and then he just you know and then he just moved on and never mentioned it again, you know, I'm just like, "Whoa, wait, wait a minute, dude you can't you can't just throw something like that on the table and then walk away from it. you know yeah, this, exactly. this is up more to and there was all you know and little things like you know mentioning that you know Jim Morrison's father was this high ranking naval admiral, and you know so and sos and just, you know, these little facts that, that to most people wouldn't, you know, have any particular meaning, you know, what I mean, 99% of the people reading Michael Walker's book just, you know, just gloss over that stuff. Yeah. and But to me, it was just, you know, alarm bells going off left and right. I'm like, wait a minute, what? You know, and, yeah. and so by the time I got back from that vacation, I was just chomping at the bit to uh, to dig deeper and deeper into the story and started buying more, you know, every book and magazine article and Newspaper article and just you know digging up everything I could and and the more I the more I read the more of these little things I found and and eventually I realized that, that, that there was a whole other story to be told in in just sort of the throat, the the stuff that other writers were presenting as just besides and throwaway facts and I'm like well wait a minute if you put all of these together you know I mean if you just toss them out here and there you can say oh, okay that's just an interesting right anomaly but when it comes up over and over and over, you know, at some point you're like, well, this is more than, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a pattern. That's, you know, something much different. So, um, so I decided that, you know, there was a whole nother book to be written, uh, with, you know, just just focusing on all of the, all of these inconsistencies that that the other writers kind of glossed over or ignored or just kind of tossed out there and moved on. And, um, and what I found, you know, the, the deeper I went, was that uh, that there was a, a whole a whole other level to the story that had that had never been told, and um, and that's that's what you know what made it fascinating to me. And, and I think one of the things, one of the main reasons that it seems to have resonated with so many people is that, like you say, this was like very fresh ground. You know, I mean, everything else that I've ever looked at, whether it's you know nine one one or you know, various assassinations or coups or, you know, uh, whatever, the the, uh, mass shootings and whatnot. Uh, You know, this is ground that that dozens of other people have trod over and, you know, you can find all kinds of alternative versions on the Internet. But this was completely fresh ground. This was a story that had remained untold for 50 years, you know, just completely untold. And um, so... um, Yeah, that's that's that's, yeah. It's it's fresh turf, you know. It was unplowed ground, and uh, so that that's one of the things that really attracted me to it, and and I think that you know so many other people as well, and and you know people ask me now, well, what what are you going to do next? What are you going to follow this up with? And I'm like, well. I don't know that I can. <laughs> how many how many fifty-year-old stories are out there laying around waiting to be discovered? You know, I mean. It's, well, I mean there's, you got to go a hundred years, them.
1: and then you get Lincoln one. So you're all to <laughs> you Just keep going back in increments of fifty.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I just yeah, like I said, I love the book. I highly recommend it to folks. Uh, it really, you really can't put it down. It's really it's really I like really like your conversational style too. You made me laugh a few times during the book. You know when you know coincidences quote unquote would keep happening over and over again and you'd you'd point them out in, in an increasingly sort of uh
2: <laughs> hilarious fashion I've been told that my writing style was very accessible and uh, i mean there's a few haters if you look over my reviews on Amazon you'll see that uh you know some people definitely do not appreciate my uh my sarcasm and and uh sort of conversational writing style but for the most part, most people really, really do seem to uh, seem to appreciate it, and uh, yeah, some of, some of the greatest compliments I've gotten are on uh, you know the, the writing style and, and readability of it. And, um, when it was online, it was like uh, it was like people were were like getting hooked, you know. And, and if I took too long getting the next installment up, I'd start getting flooded with emails from people, you know. So where's my yeah, yeah. you know. What are you doing? You get us hooked on this story, and now you're cutting us off. So, you know, I'm just like, dude, what do you want? Yeah, what man. What do you want for nothing, you know? Exactly. <laughs> hey,
1: you're talking, I, I, man, you're getting nerves here. I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. It's like you appreciate that they want more, but at the same time, they want more. And they just want more and more. Yeah, and, more.
2: <laughs> and uh, at one point I put up a notice. I'm like, "This is not a crack house, people. You can't come knocking on my door at all hours of the day and night, begging for more Laurel Canyon." You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a free website. I'm not getting paid for this. You know? <laughs> Thank you. And,
0: Thank uh, you. But yeah.
2: yeah, people just were just like more and more. And even now that I got the book out, one of the one of the one of the most uh, frequent questions I get is if I'm going to do a follow up. <laughs> are you, do, you know, people want to know, are you, are you going to do the same thing with, the? you know, are you going to do, now do the same thing with the British Invasion bands? Are you going to do the same thing with the Hate ashbury scene? Are you going to do the same thing with the Punk and New Wave scene? Are you going to do the same thing with the grunge scene out of Seattle? And, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> you know, it's only, it's, I put in like seven years just into this one, you know. Oh, man, you and, found uh, a new you know, cottage this,
1: industry here. You're, you're tapped into a bank now.
2: Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, apparently, yeah, I'm now, uh, that's what I have to do now for the rest of my days on this <laughs> earth, is, uh, it's, it, you know, and I, but, you know, I mean, there's so many other stories that I'm interested in, and I'm sure that there's just as good a, you know, a story to be told and just as good a book to be written about, about all of those scenes, and I, and I hope that other people are inspired, you know, to, to do that and, and to look into it, but. You know whether whether I'm gonna try to to do all of that is uh, is but yeah people just want more and more and more of this it's, it's uh, which is it's very gratifying it really is mm. you know so many people uh, but but at the same time it's like whoa slow down people right <laughs> right yeah I I got other things going on in my life you know? it's a
1: nice <laughs> feeling but it gets overwhelming fast that's for sure um,
2: yeah it does
1: I guess now the central sort of thesis of the book. Uh, which you pretty much plainly state kind of in the beginning, is uh, what if the musicians themselves in the 60s and 70s uh, that sort of sprung from the Laurel Canyon scene, the counterculture, and the various other leaders and founders of this movement, I'm kind of quoting here from the book, were every bit as much a part of the intelligence community as the people who were supposedly harassing harassing them. That's kind of your general idea behind the book. And it's really, it's sort of a fascinating question because no one's ever really asked that before. Now, personally, I came out of it kind of thinking that they... The musicians were i felt like they were kind of dupes in all this they were kind of used by the intelligence agencies um you know maybe some were kind of working hand in hand but not nearly as many as were just kind of like just patsies and and sort of morons who were taken advantage of and and you know bestowed riches by being in these bands and stuff and that had it quickly taken away you know pulled how the rug pulled off from under them and everything else um but I mean what did you kind of think coming out of it how how deep do you think this sort of orchestration lied in the whole thing
2: I I tend to agree with you I get that question a lot you know and and um you know people people really want and you know it, it hasn't all been positive feedback on this story um you know people really want to hang on to their icons you know and their idols and uh you know uh some of these people you know i mean they they they've, they've been dead or, or well past their creative peak for many many decades but they still have hugely devoted fan bases you know and um so and not all the feedback has been positive, you know. When you when you go after you know Jim Morrison and Frank Zappa and they, you know are these huge huge iconic names that to, to this day are, are house you know these iconic household names, uh, you're definitely going to ruffle ruffle some feathers, um, you know. But uh, I, I tend to think that it was probably a mix. I think I mean, some of them probably knew what was going on, but I, I think a lot of them were just pawns. Really, you know, in in the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, it seemed that way because like they a lot of them sort of like burst onto the scene, peaked really quickly, and then kind of uh went wayward fast. But you you, you point out a, a yeah. lot if it, you know if there was one sort of other like sort of theme of the book, it's that there are this series of undeniable trends that keep coming up throughout the course of the book. Uh, you know, that, that that for some reason serendipitously, and I use that in quotes, you point that out, that it always seems to be the word to describe how this all went down. All of these musicians sort of end up in Laurel Canyon in the 60s, and this is way before they become big stars. And then all of a sudden sort of this club scene bursts up. Then they become big stars and they get picked up by the major record labels just for no apparent reason, really but they're picked up like by the biggest record labels and then pushed to the moon and become superstars overnight. Uh seemingly overnight. And most of the time they're rather unqualified to be uh star musicians. And surprisingly as we people are finding out now in later years, this whole wrecking crew story about how there was these these uh studio musicians that did all the music on these bands. So they really were like the story of the monkeys like in real life. And you kind of point that out in the book too. It's like that the monkeys thing Almost applies to some of these big bands like the Birds and the Mamas and the Papas and, and all these other ones that you mentioned in the book. Like they were really backed by the Beach Boys too. They were backed by these studio musicians that had that had got no credit and did all the real like music making on the album. So these are a lot of the trends that are coming up over the course of the book seem to come. And all these people, well, not all of them, but the vast majority of them, have some kind of family ties to the intelligence and uh, the army, military sort of uh, communities. That's the, sort of the big. You know the big bouya base of things that are coming together in the book, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a whole lot to write off as serendipity, you know. I mean, uh, you, you have the, you have this one very very small, you know, geographically isolated neighborhood that, uh, you know, for no particular reason whatsoever, just just oh, uh, you know, remarkably short period of time, drew all of these. People who would just become these, you know, huge, larger than life figures. You know, I mean, uh, the Doors and Buffalo Springfield and the Birds and the Turtles and Frank Zeppa and the Mothers of Invention and Arthur Lee and Love and John Kay and Steppenwolf and and you know all these singer songwriters, James Taylor and and, uh, Jackson Brown and. Uh, Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins and, and uh just uh, just a, a, an amazing array of singer songwriters and musicians uh, you know all just gathered you know all in the, at the time you know all of them completely unknown all just happened to gather in this one spot for no apparent reason <laughs> originally which also just happened to house a uh, you know a covert intelligence facility and also had various other government types uh you know uh, around for various reasons the 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 uh the the people who would, would later uh you know spearhead the uh the project for a new american century the the so called neocon cabal uh, got their start there and, you know, uh, uh, the the future governor and lieutenant governor of the state were both uh, bouncing around there, Jerry Brown, and who who's still our governor to this day, amazingly enough, uh, and Mike Kerb. So, you know, you had this weird, you had, uh, you know, it was a very weird place for, for all these, uh, you know, musicians and aspiring hippies to suddenly gather, you know, where, where, where there was all this, uh, you know, government activity going on and then added to that you have the fact that so many of them themselves came from you know career military and military intelligence families and uh you know there's just there's just they're just so uh, it just it and and the speed with which it came together as you noted and, and you know the fact that these these people were signed with with little experience and and uh, you know at times not even knowing how to play their instruments at all and yet they were signed, and uh, and this wasn't like a grassroots thing. That I mean, you think of like a grassroots music movement, you know, you think of these, these struggling musicians, you know, struggling for years playing coffee houses, and maybe getting a little college radio airplay, and, you know, eventually maybe working their way up to, you know, major label and, and mainstream exposure, but that's not how this happened at all. I mean, literally within like weeks these people arrived here and they're signed and they're they're in the studio cutting records and and all these clubs just pop up out of nowhere so that they have venues to play and I mean this whole scene just came together with was such a remarkable just in such a remarkably short time. Um
1: that it makes you suspicious. So, yeah, I mean makes you wonder what really happened yeah i mean a
2: lot you know so you know like you know as you said the beginning, it it's a fair question to ask you know and you know where you know were these people really who we you know who we are led to believe they were and it's a question that's been asked about other 60s figures you know i mean they there is you know there are opposing camps on on like Timothy Leary and you know Tom Hayden Jerry Rubin all those kind of people you know whether they were or not you know, what, what they appeared to be. But uh, but nobody ever really questioned the, the musicians who, you know, became such huge stars that they were more than just entertainers. They were, in fact, you know, the, the spokesmen and the representatives of that entire, you know, youth generation of the 60s.
0: Yeah.
1: And then through all this mix, it's, it's worth pointing out here. Through, the, through So we got all that going on at once. It's hard for people to wrap their minds around. This is why I love the book so much because you're like – it's like an overwhelming story because at the same time you've got these – Future legendary actors running around. You get Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, they're, and they have their families have intelligence and sort of uh, you know mysterious ties, if you will, to sort of um, yeah the upper echelon. They're running around with all these uh, future legendary rock stars
2: too. It's like what yeah, is going yeah, on They're here, running man? around, they're running around partying with the yeah and and jam. I mean. Peter Fonda was so smitten with the whole scene that he actually recorded an entire folk album of his own that was never released. I'd love to get a copy of it, but, uh, yeah, there was a, a very, very close relationship between the, you know, the so-called young Turks and, um, and, and the Laurel Canyon musicians. And yeah, once again, you know, right down the line as you go through them, uh, it's hard to find one you know who isn't who doesn't have substantial ties you know to to the intelligence community, so you know you you have the actors you have the the musicians and then you have the the people who are openly working for the government you know at the uh lookout mountain laboratories and uh, you know various uh, these various other operations going on there so it was it's a very unusual mix yeah. to say this. To say the least. Um yeah.
1: It's pretty cool. And and then of course, uh also on the fringes of all this, sort of poking his way into the story throughout sort of this it's almost like this little mythic figure of Charles Manson just running around. He's he's friends with these people, he's hanging out with them, his followers are all mixed up into the whole mess too. So you've got this sort of little elvish elvish demonish, you know, <laughs> little golem of, of Charles Manson flitting his way throughout the story as well so it's it's awesome i really i really love it
2: yeah you have the yeah you have the manson family (laughs) uh you know handprints all over the story too so um yeah you know i mean it's a story that that has a really broad appeal i mean you know i mean just my my core audience of uh conspiracy buffs obviously you know there's a lot in it for them but uh, you know. Also, you know, all of these these artists have have huge uh, fan followings as well that want to read every word that's written about their idols. You know, uh, yeah. and Charles Manson. You know, I mean, you, you can fill a damn library with everything that's been written about Charles Manson, and and you know, um, you know, the guy, he's got an audience. You know, people just can't get enough of Charles Manson. So. Uh, you know, but but he's just really the tip of the iceberg, you know, and that that's one of the other things about this story that struck me early on was just how much violence there what what a violent backdrop there was to what was supposed to be a, a scene that was all about peace, love and understanding. Mm. And yet you have these murders going on all over the place and suspicious deaths, just uh an astounding uh, you know, number of, of uh, you know, Suspicious, to say the least, deaths and, and and outright murders. You know, I mean, you have both both the Manson murders and the uh, Wonderland murders, the notorious Four on the Floor murders that involved uh, John Holmes. <coughs> um, both with very deep ties to to the Lord Canyon scene. So, you know, uh, two, two of the most notorious, uh, mass murders in, in the city's history, yeah. uh, were deeply, deeply tied to this, uh, scene that was, you know, all about peace, love, and understanding, you know? So, so yeah, that, that, you know, you have that huge, uh, disconnect dichotomy, you know, between, uh, you know, what we're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to view this scene as, you know, just flower power and, you know, all that. And yet, uh, just a staggering number of uh, violent deaths connected to that scene,
1: yeah yeah, it's uh it's layer upon layer in this story, folks it's really fantastic now one one thing that stood out to me, and,
2: yeah, another uh, John i mentioned john hol uh Marilyn chambers and um I think it's yeah and who else um ron jeremy also also worked their way. Into this narrative, you know, just just reading the index of this book is a fascinating uh, adventure. You know, Cause <laughs> you, have, you have all these you have all these hugely iconic, you know, Hollywood movie stars like you mentioned. You know, Jack Dickinson, Marlon Brando, Warren Beatty, Bruce Stern, et cetera, et cetera. Peter Peter Fonda, Jane Fonda, Sharon Tate. You know, all of them, and you have all these larger than life musicians and you have these big name politicians you know Jerry Brown and Dick Wolfowitz and and J Edgar Hoover and and then you got some porn stars so it's just it's just the weirdest mix of people that were that were involved to varying degrees in the scene it was it's uh so yeah it's it's an endlessly fascinating story it really is
1: yeah now one of the things that stood out to me in the book uh have you talk a little bit about this, because uh, I'd never heard of this character, but it seems like he's kind of credited with sort of starting this whole hippie aesthetic, if you will. This Vito Palekas and and his uh, his buddy there, Carl Fanzoni. It seems like they were kind of they were they were like right at ground zero of the whole hippie <laughs> idea. And uh, and you point out in the book that a lot of people at the time even were kind of, you know, in retrospect, it almost it does look like it was orchestrated in a way. It does look like maybe this whole anti-war idea was infected with. With dirty, freaky hippies uh, to, to to discredit the whole idea of the anti-war movement. But talk about you know Vito Palakis, Carl Fanzoni, and their whole role in all this, because they obviously didn't come out yeah. becoming icons like all the other folks did.
2: I had never heard of him. Never, I mean, did not know who you know had no concept of, of who this guy was, and uh, and there was very little information about him available when I first started. uh, working on this, and I'd come across the name in a book, you know, and it had just been mentioned like once or twice, you know, in passing, oh, this guy, you know, did so-and-so, and I had no idea who he was, and at first, I just passed it over, I'm like, ah, this guy, I don't know who this guy is, you know, never heard of him, nobody's ever heard, I asked around, nobody ever heard of him, and so I just ignored it, and it was only after his name kept coming up, and, you know, and in these various uh, books I was reading, and that I realized, you know, this guy's name. This guy seems to have been in a lot of places and not a lot of people, and <laughs> so I went back and gathered uh, up all this information that I initially passed over, and dug as deeply as I could into him, and, and eventually uh, contacted a family member who filled in a lot of the a lot of the gaps, and um, so I think this book was really the first time that that his story has been told in any detail at all and um, now he's now he and it's really raised his profile the guy's got like his own Wikipedia page now and he has his artwork <laughs> featured on the internet and you know now you can now you punch his name in Google you'll find all kinds of stuff on him um, so uh, yeah I guess the family can can thank me or not depending on if they're happy with, the, with his portrayal in the book but yeah, he is. Uh, he was credited. He was a kind of a Manson-esque sort of figure. Uh, you know, he, he was quite a bit older than uh, most of the crowd, and uh, surrounded himself with a lot of young girls, um, and uh, was a very controlling sort of figure, and uh, basically put together like this dance troupe of, uh, and and is credited with a lot of people who were on the scene at the time as being the first hippies, the people who really uh came up with the, the look, you know, the hairstyles and the clothing styles and just sort of the attitudes and, and the whole you know, the whole look and feel of what would uh eventually become known as as hippies. They called themselves freaks. But um but they're you know, widely credited with uh with basically creating the whole the whole hippie uh thing. Um which which surprises a lot of people, including me because I mean, you ask anybody, you know, about the, the hippies and the flower children, and, and their mind's immediately going go to, to go to because go to Ashbury. You know that that is right. seen as the birthplace and really the the center of the hippie universe. You know where it all started, where it all you know happened. And uh, but the reality is that it actually started here in L.A. a couple of years before. Uh, that scene even formed and uh and these are the guys who are, you know, credited with uh with starting that whole thing out. And um as it turns out, uh old Vito is uh, related by marriage to the Rockefeller family of all people. Um, uh, you know, so once again you have these very weird connections, you know, I mean right. You don't normally think of the Rockefellers as being, <laughs> being, you know, Rockefellers and hippies don't really seem to go together.
0: <laughs> but,
2: <laughs> but but yet the guy who was, who was credited with being the main figure behind uh, starting the whole thing up, um, lo and behold, you know, was Vito Felicis. So, yeah, definitely a, a fascinating character. And,
0: um, yeah, yeah a long... a
2: very, very dark. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there was, uh, and and he was hugely instrumental in launching these bands, as were the uh, the Young Turks that we talked about earlier. Because uh, you know, the reality is, 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 as we talked about a little while ago, is that this happened very quickly. You know, these, these people were unknown, and you know they show up in town, and they're signed, you know, they're signed on as bands, and then all these clubs start opening, so that they have venues. But nobody knew who these bands were, and nobody had heard of these clubs. You know, they didn't. The clubs didn't have a clientele yet, and the, the bands didn't have a fan base. And you know, there was no particular reason for people to trek out to Hollywood to to see them. And initially, the main draw and the people, you know, there's quotes in the book from from people in the bands themselves, you know, admitting, you know, hey, we weren't the attraction. You know, it was what was going on on the dance floor. Because what the people were initially coming out to see was this this uh, bizarre sideshow that these freaks were putting on. They'd uh, cruise the you know Sunset Strip and and uh, get it to to the, all the clubs where these bands were playing, and they'd be let in free, you know, and, and given free drinks and everything. I mean, they, they were like they were like rock stars themselves because uh, the club owners knew that if you had the freaks, then you were going to draw the crowds. And uh, so they would put on these wild and crazy dance shows on the dance floor that uh, that really helped to bring the people in initially to, uh, you know, to, to be introduced to these bands. Yeah. And also distracted attention away from the stage so that people <laughs> wouldn't notice that the, the live sound didn't exactly live up to the uh, recorded sound, which was you know, recorded by other musicians, as you mentioned. Yeah. Primarily by the Wrecking Crew. And uh, so these guys, a lot of these bands could not perform on stage the way that their song sounded in the studio because they weren't the ones playing them in the studio. So they served a dual purpose of drawing crowds and and creating a, a huge distraction, as did the, um, you know, the Young Turks. Uh, you know, these they would go out, to uh, To the clubs as well. You know, Jane Mansfield and Warren and, uh, Beatty and Bruce Dern and Peter Fonda and, you know, all these all these young up-and-coming glamorous actors were uh, hitting the club scene. And that was being widely publicized, you know. I mean, the people knew that if you went to the clubs, you could see these crazy freaks dancing, and you might be able to rub shoulders with Steve McQueen or Sharon Tate or, you know, Um so that was uh, that was really the, the, what 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 helped launch these bands was the uh, the efforts of the the uh, the Young Turks and the uh, Pelikas crew, and um, all of whom you know as we as we talked about uh, had these very curious uh, political and intelligence connections.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really uh, you know no pun intended because I can hear your dog in the background, but it's like a case of the tail wagging the dog. <laughs>
2: That is my dog in the
1: background. Yeah, it's sort of like that. You wonder who's. It the whole thing feels really orchestrated. You don't really could it could you know we we're, we're kind of talking about how maybe this was sort of the the work of the intelligence community, but is it possible this was just the work of really crafty music industry folks. Who, uh, or maybe they're, maybe that's one and the same. I don't know, but what, but you know what I'm saying? Maybe they just kind of realized we can yeah. fabricate a band, and and these people will buy it no matter what.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly an unusual set of circumstances, you know, and 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 the fact that uh, you know the, these bands had corporate backing, you know, right from the start, you know, they were they were being signed by like Capitol Records and Columbia, and you know, given rehearsal space and studio space and provided with instruments and. You know, uh, and given you know airplay on on uh, you know mainstream corporate uh, radio stations, and uh, you know getting getting all kinds of attention in in uh, magazines and and even on TV. You know, I mean they, they would make like TV appearances. You know? I mean, right. Some of these bands they they made appearances on like on like all these '60s shows, like the, the Man from Uncle, or I, don't, I can't even I can't think of offhand but uh there's references in the book of, of uh you know these these people uh getting t v guest appearances you know and um so i mean they seem to have just been gotten a lot of backing and promotion from from people that should not you wouldn't think would uh be you know backing and promoting that and
1: exactly yeah. so it raises the question how how are they the counterculture if they're being embraced by the mainstream culture so it's,
2: it's yeah i mean it yeah up. it's it's not it's not like they were you know over time they were co-opted by the mainstream culture they were they were put on the map and promoted by the most you know mainstream organs of uh, you know the media and and the music industry right right from the right from the start right from the get go yeah so um you know i mean yeah how does that tr- you know <laughs> i mean yeah, it just seems a little odd that uh, yeah the the, the counterculture uh, yeah it, it it doesn't seem real organic and grassroots you know like yeah. I say it's not it's not the picture that you that you would have of of like the folk music you know that preceded it which was you know these starving struggling musicians playing coffee shops and passing the hat you know and. Uh this wasn't like that at all. I mean, there was just big money being thrown around right right from the get-go. Yeah. It's very, very strange. Now, you've
1: mentioned Lookout Mountain Laboratory a couple times. So tell people about this because, as you said in the book, people didn't even really know about it. I don't even think – I think you said it didn't even come out into, like, the mainstream until, like, the last maybe 10 or 15 years or something like that. Like, really, really recently, people have just really found out about it. So I'd never even heard about it. Talk about Lookout Mountain Laboratory.
2: Yeah. But- that was another thing that, that I had never heard of. And, you know, like I say, uh, my first uh, awareness of it was in Michael Walker's book when he, when he didn't even name it or, you know, he just said there was this facility and I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, after digging around, I, I discovered that yeah, it was a facility known as lookout mountain laboratories, which ostensibly functioned as a fully functional movie studio, supposedly the most complete, uh, you know, uh up the, the the most complete uh, film studio on the planet more so than anything that in hollywood uh you know i mean they were able to to do a, all phases of film production in house um you know they they had everything there uh, necessary and you know and, and quite likely there was there were other operations going on there as well but
0: uh
2: <laughs> you know that's uh that's a matter of speculation, but, you know, officially the main function of this uh, facility was to uh, process um, the raw footage of uh, nuclear tests. It was supposedly where they took all the films from uh, from the early nuke tests and had it processed, but, you know, that doesn't really make sense because all you needed for that is a dark room, you know, anywhere in the country, you know, you don't have to fly it out to... You know the top of lookout mountain in Laurel Canyon to some you know covert facility that has a complete fully functional studio, so yeah there was obviously a lot more going on there than than uh, you know what the government will ever admit to
0: yeah it's very weird. <laughs>
2: but um yeah very strange and um uh, and and they did employ it is known that that they did employ uh big-name Hollywood talent that worked out of there occasionally. I think John Wayne had connections, and Jimmy Stewart, and Marilyn Monroe, and, you know, directors like Howard Hawks and John Ford, and, uh, you know, big, 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 huge names from that era that uh, that did some kind of contract work there, but none of them ever spoke of it, Um, you know, and the the existence of this facility remained very, very secret for a long time, you know. I mean, when I first started reading about it. I had never heard a word about it, and I asked around among all, you know, my contacts in the conspiracy world, and, and nobody had ever heard of it, you know. I mean, people have heard of Weather Mountain and, yeah, you know, various other, co- you know, Area 51 and various other, you know, quote-unquote covert top-secret installations, but nobody had ever even heard of this place. And, uh, and, again, now there's a lot more information about it that's out there that's come out you know, in the last I don't know five ten years, uh, there's a lot, lot more available, which uh, which I, I get criticized for sometimes. Actually, you know, because people go on people go on the internet now and then Google like Vito Pelikas or or uh, Lookout Mountain and uh, you know find this additional information that's not in the book, and then they hey, how come you didn't talk about this <laughs> in the book? And I'm like, well. Because when I wrote that seven years ago, that information wasn't available. You know, don't worry about the haters, man.
1: Just do your shit. Yeah, yeah and same thing with it's uh, don't like, like uh,
2: Jim, Jim Morrison's dad, <laughs> Admiral Morrison. Uh, uh, since it's since the books come out, it's there's been reports uh, come out that that he was uh, a figure in the um, the USS Liberty incident in uh, off the coast of Israel. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? Vaguely, uh, yeah. And I get, I get, you know, I get criticized for that. You know, like, I, well, you talked about uh, his involvement in talking golf. Why didn't you talk about? And I'm like, well, again, I, you know. So it's kind of weird that I, you know, my work kind of put some of these people and places on the map. You know, the people that, you know, nobody really had much awareness of who. Uh, Jim Morrison's dad was specifically, you know, and nobody knew who Vito Palinkas was and nobody had heard of Lookout Mountain. And, you know, my work really kind of brought those to the attention of the conspiracy community and apparently inspired other people to, you know, look into them as well. So, uh, so now I get criticized for not oh, including like this material, which wouldn't even be, have been out there if I hadn't have brought up the subject to begin with, you know. So it's kind of a weird – it's kind of oh, weird.
1: Who is criticizing you? Forget them, dude. You're doing good stuff. This book's awesome.
2: Uh, uh, forget them. On forget
1: Amazon.
0: them, man. Forget my, the haters.
2: <laughs> my book is very – you look at my reviews on Amazon, and they're like uh, – well, the vast majority of them are five star, but then the, the next highest category is the one star. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sign it's, of a good one. It's woman. like a love, it or, it's a love it or hate it kind of thing. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground with people. Yeah, so, uh, uh, well,
1: are you, do? You, you, can't, you can't please them all. Now, what about uh, one thing I want to ask you about, too, here is it. like I said, this is a book of interesting trends that seem to come up a lot, too. Uh, one of them was that it seems like houses burned down a lot in the book a lot of houses end up burning down for for various reasons, most of them mysterious. But what what do you make of this whole thing where houses are burning down constantly?
2: Yeah, a lot of houses do burn down. And, you know, there are wildfires that sweep through the area. It is prone to wildfires. So, uh, you know, some of them are attributable to that. But others are just, you know, when a specific house seems to just be targeted, you know, like the the log cabin burned down under very mysterious conditions, the Houdini house and uh a whole a whole host of other ones that are mentioned in the book and um you know i mean to me it's a, it's a good way to you know to make sure that that uh that all the bodies are buried so to speak that, you know, <laughs> it's a good way of destroying any any potential evidence and there's a lot of weirdness going on with some of these houses you know for years for decades there there's been rumors of uh you know secret Passageways and, and secret rooms and underground tunnels and connections and and whatnot and and some of which have you know have been discovered and documented. Um, so there's there's a lot of weirdness involved in some of these homes. So um, I I I would tend to think that it's that, that uh, it's, a, it's a, just a means of of uh, destroying destroying evidence. Yeah. It's very weird it's very weird the whole the whole
1: area seems to have sort of a weird uh vibe over the whole thing it's uh like we' were, we've been talking about it all night here. It's just a very has a creepy sort of like shadow cast over the whole the whole region there I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf, all right. That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
0: Look, see? still got the, uh, the old tagger on it. See, so never even played it. See? You just bought it? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. I, well, touch I, it. I wasn't I going no to No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point, even. Don't, don't even point? Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I Can, can um, I look you at know? it? No. No, you've seen don't enough of it. that one.
1: Now, I want to ask you, because it didn't... It didn't come up in the book. I was kind of expecting almost this big crescendo of Manson finally, uh, you know, Manson finally going wild because he keeps sort of like wriggling his way through the book. And I'm expecting sort of Manson to explode at the end, but uh, he doesn't. You don't do anything with the Manson murders. So how do you how do you sort of fit the Manson murders into the research that you did here for uh, weird scenes inside the canyon? What do you think went down that, uh, that that night and 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 in general with Manson? Cuz he, he he seems like he could have gone either way. He, if these if these people in charge of, of orchestrating all this, picked and chose the artists, you know, he very well could have been could have gone the other way and been a huge rock star and we never would have known about it. But it seems like he went down obviously he went down a different path. Um so what do you think yeah, went down it, there?
2: It, it, yeah, I mean it is interesting cuz uh yeah, he he was uh he was pretty widely respected and accepted as a, as a you know, member of the, the Laurel Canyon, you know, fraternity of uh, singer songwriters, you know, and then, you know, again, there's quotes in the book, uh, some people like Neil Young, you know, just raving about the guy. And, um, uh, you know, several people tried to get him, uh, get him signed to recording contracts and whatnot. And, you know, the beach boys even stole one of his songs and retitled it and put it out on their own label. <laughs> so um you know he he could have uh he could have very easily you know been um uh, you know just as well known as he is today for for very different reasons you know had had things gone a little differently you know i mean he's not that far removed from uh you know from from, from a lot of the other people there uh as far as what went down that night um i think it was i think it was uh, most likely some kind of a drug hit um, I don't think it really had anything to do with Helter Skelter. I actually covered it more in my uh, previous book, uh, Program to Kill, which is the, my my serial killer book, and I had gone into it uh, more there, which is uh, one of the reasons I didn't didn't go into the actual murders and whatnot in uh, mm-hmm. in the new book. Um, but they were definitely. I mean, everybody connected to them. Uh, was very closely tied to be, to the Laurel Canyon scene, both the perpetrators uh, and the uh, the victims. Abigail Folger and her uh, significant other Wojtek Frykowski were actually living in Laurel Canyon at the time, in a home right across the road from uh, Mama Cass's home, and they had a lot of mutual friends. And according to some reports, Charles Manson hung out at Mama Cass's house. Um, so, you know, they were very closely tied. Uh, Sharon Tate was uh, hung out in Laurel Canyon all the time. She lived in, in uh, Benedict Canyon where the murders went down. But yeah. she spent a lot of time uh, in Laurel Canyon hanging out which she was friends with like uh, John and Michelle Phillips and Cass Elliott and all these, uh, a lot of these rock stars, they just basically kept like open houses, uh, you know, Phillipses and Cass Elliott and, one of the monkeys and and various other people just kind of ran these party houses where people would just drop in and out at all hours of the day and night and party and jam and whatnot. And it was just sort of a nonstop party. And uh, so Sharon Tate was, was very much a part of that scene. And, and I like to say uh, uh, Folger and Switowski and um, uh, Jay Seagring was also very closely tied to the Laurel Canyon scene. He was a business partner of John Phillips. He's the guy that was credited with creating, uh, Jim Morrison's, uh, famous, uh, you know, uh, hairdo. And so, you know, all every, uh, you know, other than the, the kid who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, Stephen parent, I think his name was, who most do a lot of who's practically forgotten these days. Uh, <laughs> other than him, all every uh, all the people killed at that home were very very closely tied to the scene, as were uh, the killers. You know, Bobby Bosley lived in, uh, you know, who was one of Manson's right hand man, uh, lived in Laurel Canyon for a time, played uh, played rhythm guitar with uh, one of the Laurel Canyon bands, Love, for a while, and you know, Charlie and all his girls uh, hung around at various uh, locations uh, in Lower Canyon. So the, it, it was, they were very, very, very close ties um, between the... Uh, and, and, you know, the the, the, the prevailing, uh, you know, view of the Manson murders is that they, these, they, you know, grungy ne'er-do-well hippies, you know, uh, went and, and slaughtered these beautiful Hollywood people. But... The reality is that they, that they all really traveled in the same social circles and had a lot of mutual friends and a right, lot right. of uh, a lot of ties. I mean, they they weren't that far, you know. They weren't that, they weren't really that far apart. So
1: yeah, it's really weird. Um, that, uh, did, now, when it all went down, I wasn't around in these days, obviously. Uh, but when it all went down, did, did the rock stars and all the people in the area sort of close ranks and be like, no, we we kind of knew them, but not really," that kind of thing.
2: Oh yeah! Everybody distanced themselves very, very quickly from them. Yeah, um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Once, once, uh, once the arrests were made, uh, yeah, everybody, everybody, everybody scrambled to get as far away from from uh, associations with the family as they possibly could. But, uh, but a lot of them had had very, very close ties. I mean, he lived with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys for an entire summer. You
0: know? yeah, yeah. Some
2: of his girls. During which time he met the guys from Buffalo Springfield, he you know he he partied with the guys from Canned Heat, and I mean he, he knew a lot of these people, you know the mamas and the papas, you know um, he he definitely uh, knew and hung out with them. So uh, yeah, he was he was very very closely tied to that uh, to that whole scene.
1: Yeah, it's very uh, like I said, it seems like it could have gone either way. You really wonder. Uh... You know, so do you? So do you not subscribe to sort of the idea that he was that the whole thing was sort of government orchestrated? Because some people think it, you know, some people tie it into sort of like a government plot or or some kind of ritualistic thing going on. Do you think it was more mundane, maybe
2: just sort of like a drug deal gone wrong? Um, yeah, I they pro- no, I think there were no. I think he was definitely uh, definitely some government uh, connections going on there but uh yeah i it's it's uh, i don't know it's, it's an interesting case i'm i'm not even i'm not really even 100% convinced that the uh the people who took the fall or even the ones who did it you know i mean there, there was there was evidence at the scene that it had that it had been staged after the fact that the bodies had been moved and you know there were fingerprints there that uh, fresh fingerprints that were never accounted for. There was a pair of eyeglasses that was never accounted for. Oh, weird. Uh, you know there, there was compelling evidence that there were others possibly involved or that somebody else came and restaged the scene or uh, it, it's it's. Uh, it's a fascinating case to be sure. I mean, that, that's a, that's a subject for a a whole book in itself. Even though a number of them have already <laughs> have yeah, already yeah. been written. It's
1: a strange. It's a strange. Uh, it's a very strange story. Uh, another one, one character in the book, sort of who. You seem it seems like you're not a fan David Crosby. I I don't have an opinion either way. So I'm not this isn't like I'm not coming at you like a super fan or anything, but uh you see he comes across as one of the worst people in the book, like one of the, one of the least likable people in the book. He kind of comes off as sort of uh, sort of just getting in, in getting into everything he can to make sure that he comes out looking looking good in in a sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've never really been impressed with David Crosby. Um you know, I, uh, you know, I mean, he definitely has a fan base. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's still, still, uh, you know, a huge name in the music world, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm all that impressed. you know, and he, he's never a great musician. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of quotes to that effect, uh, in the book that, that he, you know, was never a great musician. He's, uh, you know, I guess he's a talented singer. I i not <laughs> Seemed more like he was just a good networker. Yeah, he he definitely was. Yeah, you know, he's a very well-connected guy to say the least. And um Yeah, I you know, um I mean he emerged from the birds as uh definitely he became the the uh the, the biggest name to come out of that band, but uh to, to my mind, he certainly was. He wasn't even close to being the most talented member of the band, but uh, he definitely is the one that, that became uh, that came away from there with the, the greatest amount of fame and, and the you know most successful uh, career after that. But uh, you know, Gene Clark and Roger McGuinn, and I mean, almost everybody in the band actually, <laughs> to my mind was. Like, was more talented than him, but you know he's the one that emerges as a star. So you yeah, know, and it's like sad you know. point out in the book too. Like these
1: other guys in the birds that you mentioned, like most of them end up kind of they they have kind of sad lives after it all goes down. You know, it's like uh, like a lot of the people in the book really, uh, you know, they burst on the scene. They they, they they you know it doesn't turn out well for them.
2: Some of the people on the scene who were considered some of the the. Brightest Stars, uh, yeah, did not have very good, uh, yeah, did did, did did not have good life arcs, so to speak, and, and some of them are real, like, long forgotten and just very, very tragic tales, like Judy Still. who I had never heard of, and, you know, I would imagine most people even, you know, that are big fans of that era probably uh, never heard of her or don't remember her, and uh, David Blue and Uh, Some names like that 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 pop up in the book that were considered very, very talented, just, you know, huge, like on par with the people who did become, you know, these huge iconic names. And, uh, yeah, they burned out and and tended to to come to very unfortunate ends very early in their lives.
1: Now, one of the weird... Another trend I noticed in the whole thing uh, kept coming up over and over again. It was really, really strange. And it's like, I don't know anyone that this even happened to. So the fact that it happened to so many people in the book, I found really peculiar. And that's the uh, the fact that a lot of the players in the book, even the minor players and stuff, uh, they, they, they it seemed like they had a parent who committed suicide when they were really young. It's like, what? that is so weird, but it happens over and over and over again in the book. What do you make of that?
2: Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's another thing that at first, I, you know, it would pop up and I thought, oh, it's, you know, rather tragic, but probably not relevant. But then it just kept coming up so many times. And, uh, like, in, sometimes in just, sometimes in just really uh, just extraordinary ways. Like, one of the Manson girls actually had three parents commit suicide. <laughs> it's just, uh, both of her natural parents supposedly committed suicide, and then she was adopted, and one of her two adoptive parents committed suicide. You know, that's just, I mean, how, who has three parents commit suicide? I mean, it's just bizarre. Uh, I think um, two of... Uh, Two of uh, Henry Fonda's wives, I believe, committed suicide as well. So two of uh, you know Peter and Jane Fonda's uh, mother and stepmother, I believe, <laughs> and you know, and a whole bunch of other people. Um, the guy doing time for murder right now which is uh Specter, Phil Spector. One of his parents committed suicide, and um, just yeah, just a, a, a staggering list. I, I was I was amazed by it, how many of these people uh, suffered this this, you know, what has to be one of the most severe, you know, childhood traumas you could probably endure, I would think, and, um, yeah, it seemed to happen an extraordinary number of times, and, you know, you got to wonder how, how many of these, I mean, to me, just, you know, suicides in general, uh, I feel a lot of stuff gets brushed into the rug, especially in Hollywood, you know, and with, uh with the suicide label and, you know, I mean, a lot of Hollywood suicides to me are, are very suspect. So, um, um, yeah, you know, you got to wonder, uh, you know, how many of them actually were suicides and, and why so many of these, uh, parents, you know, died under these violent and, and uh, unusual circumstances.
1: Well, I noticed that in the book, actually, that you are exceedingly skeptical about suicides. And so what, Makes you what? What drives that? Because every time you know, it is never a straight suicide in the book. It's always like reportedly a suicide, allegedly a suicide, and I was like, this this <laughs> this guy doesn't believe anyone commits suicide. So, what did you? What? What? what why so are I you so believe, suspicious yes. of
2: that? Um, just because a lot of them just don't add up to for me. You know, I mean, just so many of of, of what you know, what what passes as suicide in Hollywood is just, uh, you know, just like David, the David Carradine thing, you know, I'm thinking of more recent times, uh, Yeah. you know, that, that didn't, that didn't really seem like a suicide to me, you know, or, uh, well, Charles rocket, that's an interesting one that I've read about, uh, well, I had heard about it years ago and then I just came across it again a few weeks ago. Who was, uh, Charles rocket was one of the comics on Saturday night live. Yeah. He was one of the news anchors one year. Yeah, I think he only was on there for a couple of years. And, um, His death was listed as suicide. The guy was found in a field with his uh, neck cut so deeply that he was almost beheaded. And uh, they listed it as a suicide. I'm like, who runs out in the middle of a field and tries to chop their own head off? You know (laughs) I mean? I just, uh, you know, so, you know, I read stuff like that and I'm just, uh, so, you know, I've just, over the years I've just become very suspicious of, uh, you know, quote unquote Hollywood suicides, you know, I mean and, and a lot of other people have too, you know, I mean, um any time it happens now, the the internet just lights up immediately. You know, Robin Williams has has been batted around for months and months now on the internet. Yeah. Over, you know, the circumstances of his death and and uh you know so I guess yeah, my, I'm
1: uh my question then is that, like why 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 do you think these suicides are covered up? What's your what's your theory? Or what's your what's your gut reaction to why they don't just investigate them as what, what sounds like murders?
2: Um, to uh, to to direct attention away from the motive, most likely. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think a lot of these people are are you know involved uh, in stuff that the general public has no awareness of whatsoever. You know, I think this is a very the whole nother side to their existence, you know, and which, you know, occasionally you'll you know, you'll hear, you know, little little stuff about and it's usually, you know, the media will just sort of uh you know, try to gloss over it and or, you know, have a have a have a good laugh at it, you know, like Chuck Barris, you know, put out a book years ago claiming that he had a whole secret life as a government hitman, you know, going on. So, I mean, everybody just thought that was ridiculous, you know, but is it really, you know? And, uh, there was a case just recently that, um, this guy, I think he's a professional athlete or something and his wife, his girlfriend or his fiance or something is like a model.
1: Oh, I heard about that. And, uh, like a race
2: car driver. And, uh, she, they, uh, yeah, see, it came out in court that uh, that she's a, a government uh, assassin. That <laughs> one of the things that attracted uh, her him to her was that she told had told him that she was a uh, a government assassin. That she went out on these covert missions and had a whole you know secret uh, other life. And um, you know, I I I think there's a lot more of that that goes on than than what people realize. And uh, so when these people come to mysterious ends, the, you know, the the it has to be covered up. Yeah. Because uh, they don't want, you know. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> <That's> I think <laughs> interesting. All right. I think there's a very very sordid uh, side of uh, of Hollywood, much more so than than what most people think.
1: It's uh, Kurt Bush we're talking about, the NASCAR driver. But I know I know exactly what you mean. So, you, so yeah. also it also could be a type of situation too, where they use these people up, and then they're like, there's no use for them anymore, so they kill them off because they're they're done using them. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, that's yeah. Even if yeah. it's unbeknownst they, to yeah,
0: them, it's like, hey, all right, we're done.
2: They, yeah. They yeah, they at some point they they're no longer an asset and they become a liability for whatever reason or or maybe they uh they want to talk or you know or, or they threaten to go public or uh you know who knows it's, you know. You when you live you know you live by the sword you die by the sword that's what they say exactly. and, uh, you know um so yeah, I mean there's a reason that there's there's so much weirdness in Hollywood and so many, uh, you know, and that goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, there's always been deaths in Hollywood that have been questioned, you know, going all the way back to like the early days of like Thomas Ince. Uh, I think his name was a director or, um, Thelma Todd and, uh, you know, all kinds of people that, uh, from the very earliest days of Hollywood that to this day, there's, there's open questions about, uh, the circumstances of their death, so um yeah I, I think Hollywood's always been kind of a very uh a dark and mysterious place behind the curtains,
0: yeah,
1: well, you also kind of allude to throughout the book uh just sort of like dark black magic-y kind of uh, occult uh ritualistic type stuff going on so i mean what what's your what's your take on all that how 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 deep do you think that runs and and what do you thinks
2: behind it all? i uh, i think it, i tend to think it runs pretty deep actually and um you know i you know there, there's a huge overlap between occultism and, and and the intelligence community and uh, you know there there seems to be a, a very sort of symbiotic relationship going on there and um so uh you know i mean and so when when that when that kind of stuff pops up, it doesn't really surprise me because it seems to, it seems to weave its way through most of the stories and most of the work that I've done. And uh, it just, uh, yeah, to me, it's just, it's just another sign that the, the intelligence, uh, you know, intelligence community working behind the scenes, so to speak. Well,
1: some really creepy stuff, man. Cause you're talking about like ritual murders and child sacrifices and pedophilia and all kind of really, Horrific stuff. So it's like, oh, geez, you don't even want to know what's really going on. But it seems like you're right. It doesn't. Yeah. Kind of lurking in the
2: back. Well, background. my earlier book is even. My earlier book goes much more into after program to kill, and that one is very, very dark with, with you know, all of that the ritual, ritual murders and, and uh, multi-perpetrator, multi-victim pedophilia cases, and all of that. Just very, very very uh dark and unpleasant uh subject matter to say the least yeah so um yeah this one this one this one doesn't get near doesn't get quite that dark uh, as the earlier one no
1: no yeah i've uh
2: i've I've been down those roads before in, in more detail so um yeah it's uh yeah, it gets uh, it gets very, very dark and grim and, and, and very hard for people to wrap their heads around, very difficult for people to believe, you know, that to, because it's just seen so far removed from what they view as the reality of, you know, life in the 21st century. And, uh, but unfortunately, if you dig deep enough, uh, you'll find that there, this, a lot of this stuff can be documented and as dark and ugly as it is, it's, It is going on, you know, and we're seeing more and more of it kind of pop come to light now, you know, especially in the U.K. with the Jimmy Seville case and and, uh, the various high-ranking government officials being exposed and whatnot.
1: Oh, like Gary Glitter and all that, too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some uh, unsettling stuff for sure. Um, To say the least, yeah. Yeah, it's creepy, creepy stuff. I'm gonna have to pick up this other book. Uh, what's the What's the name of the other book? Because I wanna I wanna dig into that. Maybe I can get it before
0: I go uh,
2: on vacation. <laughs> uh, Program to Kill. Yeah, yeah, you like that one. It's uh, it's a big, thick volume. It'll take you a little little longer to get through, but uh, yeah, it's it's very, very, very dark to say the least, and. Uh, not nearly as much humor injected into it as this one. Uh, most of my work, I, I try to throw as much uh, humor into the mix as I can. You know, I, I work on the Mary Poppins principle that uh, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> but uh, that book, the subject matter was just so relentlessly dark and bleak that it's, it's hard to uh, hard to have any kind of sense of humor about it at all, really. So yeah. it's uh, it's a little different in tone than, than the new one, but uh, it, before the new one came out, it was by far my most popular work. It's now been eclipsed by Weird Scenes, but uh, prior to that, it was uh, it was my most popular work that I've done. So,
1: well, this is uh, this is some book. How big is this Laurel Canyon? You know, as the crow flies, like how how big would you say it is? Uh, it's uh, is it, it's not even comparable like to a city or anything, right?
2: Oh no, no! It's not a city. It's not even a suburb. It's just it's a it's a neighborhood, basically. It's just one of one of many canyons. Uh, you know, there's a number of canyons that snake through that basically connect uh, the west side of L.A. to the San Fernando Valley. There's uh, Benedict Canyon, Beverly Glen, Coldwater Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Beechwood Canyon, yeah. Nichols Canyon. I think a couple others. It, it's just one of them. You know, they just. Uh, you know, for no particular reason became, you know, the center of the, the music world for a while. And, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's, 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 I mean, the name Laurel Canyon doesn't really mean anything. It's not like its own city or, or subdivision or anything. It's just, it's just a part of LA that's, you know, dubbed the uh, Laurel Canyon. And, um, yeah, they're very small. I mean, uh, the you know I, I mean I comment at one point on the book is like was there any room in the canyon for any normal people to sit in
0: you know yeah. with all
2: these rock stars and actors? Because it's not very big and and you know like I say it's kind of a, kind of geographically isolated and and it has a much different feel than than most of l a which is just you know just asphalt and glass and concrete, you know, and lower canyon is is very rustic and woodsy and you know, it doesn't really look or feel like uh, like the rest of LA, and uh, but but very small and 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 uh, but and and self-contained to some degree. Unlike the other canyons, it has its own little country store. It has its own elementary school. Uh, it used to have its own little newspaper. I don't know if it still does. So it's um, yeah, it's just a neighborhood, but it's it's kind of isolated and, and close knit. So it, yeah. you know. So it's, you know, sort of its own community in a sense. But, I mean, uh, you know, uh, as far as far as the post office or anyone else is concerned, it's just another address in L.A. Yeah.
1: Now, what we, you know, obviously this book is dealing with sort of the heyday of Laurel Canyon. So when did it all kind of uh, fizzle out, if you will? When did it stop being the hot place? When did things change, if you will, uh, you know, from, from the heyday that we're talking about?
2: It really didn't last that long, like 10 years at the most. Um, you know, it started in like the mid sixties. I think the first, the first record to come out of there was Mr. Tambourine Man by the birds. They were the first, very first band to launch out of Laurel Canyon, their first single, which I think was released in 64. And, um, and then, you know, like I say, all these clubs started popping up and, um, one of the things that really killed it was the Monterey Pop Festival, which was just a few years later in like 1967, I think. Is that when the Monterey Pop Festival was? I believe 1967, <clears throat> which really introduced um, these bands uh, for the first time to a to a, nationwide, a national audience. Uh, and it transformed it from a local scene into sort of a, a nationwide phenomenon. And what happened after that is these bands grew very very quickly and um soon outgrew the clubs and and uh, graduated into larger venues so uh they were kind of a, a victim of their own success in that they they very quickly outgrew the the, the the clubs that had been opened up to uh to launch them and um you know and, and ultimately just uh took the whole music industry to a whole nother level, um, with sort of the second wave of Laurel Canyon bands that came out in the early seventies, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and, uh, the Eagles and, uh, the, uh, reformed, uh, Fleetwood Mac who, you know, put out these albums that to this day are, are some of the biggest selling albums of all time. Um, and just really kind of transformed the whole music industry. And these these bands went from playing clubs to playing, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, larger, larger venues, larger and larger venues ultimately due, uh, <coughs> to where they were filling up, you know, 100,000 seat uh, sports arenas, you know, by the mid-70s. Yeah. <laughs> People like Elton John. And uh, and that that was really uh, a lot of these Laurel Canyon bands that did that, you know, the people that were very closely associated with that scene, and um, really made the music industry the the huge, you know, multi-million dollar behemoth that it became. Yeah. And so um, so it didn't, you know, it really only lasted uh, through then, and, and by you know, like by they say, by the mid '70s, these bands had just become so huge that. Uh,
0: They could live anywhere. They they
2: couldn't even, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they could live anywhere and they they were playing these huge, huge venues and putting out, you know, multi-platinum albums and so, uh, yeah, it it didn't last all that long.
1: What's it like nowadays, just like a regular neighborhood sort of uh, in LA?
2: It's very upscale, you know, and it still, still draws a Hollywood crowd because it's just, just north of Hollywood, just, just up off uh, Sunset Boulevard and, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely an upscale part of LA and, uh, it's still very it's rustic sure and it. it has, yeah, it has a certain mystique and, um, you know, and, and like, it, and, it, and it does have a much different feel, you know, it still has a great appeal to people who, uh, want to kind of get out of the, the, uh, the city and, you know, move up into the hills and look down on the rest of us city dwellers. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's the the some of the, you know, a lot of the landmarks are still there. The Laurel Canyon, the Laurel, uh, the Canyon Country Store is still there, still in business. Um, you know, a lot of the iconic structures, though, uh, as we had talked about, are burned down. You know, the log cabin's been gone since like 1980, the Houdini Mansion burned down like uh, even earlier than that. And, yeah. Uh, but you know some of the places are still there. You can still see the Wonderland Death House where four people were bludgeoned to death still unchanged up on uh, on uh, Wonderland Avenue. The school's still there and so um you know some some of it still that's still some of the still some of that same feel. I actually went I went to a street fair there last year where they tried you know they had a Doors cover band play and you know had everything like decorated in sort of a sixties motif, and you know they are still they're still trying to they're still trying to keep keep that bohemian sort of uh, vibe and image alive to some extent yeah
1: now talk about the ruins of rustic Canyon, because I thought that was really interesting. It sounds like this like I don't know if you ever watch lost, but it sounds like this like Dharma initiative situation going on uh back in the day it
2: was a really weird
1: uh story That's yeah i I like.
2: That's a weird one. I just went uh, I just uh, like 6 months ago, we took a uh, a group. I put up a notice on like the book's Facebook page uh, inviting anybody to to come along and uh we had a group of like 8 of us that went exploring there. And uh which every, everyone just found fascinating except that we, we end uh we had to have one of the guys uh, medevac'd out of there, believe it or not. Oh shit. The guy collapse from collapse from like he wasn't in great shape and uh I mean he wasn't like real old. He was probably like sixty ish, early sixties, but it was a very hot day and uh a lot of a lot of walking up and down steps and whatnot and uh he had some kind of a I don't know what, collapse from the heat and uh we actually had to call in a helicopter to medevac him out of there. Oh my which god. Was bizarre. Yeah, I got like we got pictures and video. I mean that was uh ended up being a uh, much more exciting day than we anticipated. And, uh, <laughs> they actually they had to pull this dude out by cable. They oh my dropped, God. So It was it was amazing. I mean, we're just we're there, and and uh, next thing you know, the the helicopters there and surveying the scene and determined that uh, he wasn't going to be able to land. So uh, next thing you know, the, the, this guy comes flying out the side of the thing like Rambo on a cable. <laughs> <laughs> They dropped him down, and he harnessed this dude up and hooked him up to the cable, and they pulled him up like 100 feet by cable. Uh, it, was just, uh, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yikes. And then uh, took him off. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, Rustic Canyon is uh, a few canyons over. Uh, it's right above where uh, where Dennis Wilson lived in uh, Will Rogers' old house and where uh, Charles Manson spent the summer of uh, 1968. And, um, it has a fascinating history as well. It's, it's an, an, an uninhabited canyons undeveloped unlike like little Canyon, there's no homes there. And, uh, it's just like hiking trails and whatnot. But, uh, but back in the forties, it was built out as according to, uh, various city historians and, and reports that have surfaced, it was built out as a Nazi compound, uh, in the years leading up to and during World War II, it was uh, it was built as this uh, self-contained uh, Nazi compound that had uh, the whole infrastructure built to support a like a small town or a small community. Uh, they had uh, uh, this huge electrical power station with two twin generators, which is still standing to this day because it was all all built of, uh, poured one, one, uh, 12 inch thick concrete walls and ceilings. This this huge, uh, power station. And, uh, you know, they ran power throughout the, the throughout the area. There's, there's a uh, irrigation water system, drinking water system, sewer system. And I mean, they had built this whole infrastructure there, uh, giant, huge water tanks, huge propane tanks and, uh, greenhouses to grow food and uh, stables for livestock and grazing areas and orchards and I mean, everything needed to provide all of the essentials of life uh, to exist off the grid in this remote part of Rustic Canyon. And uh, a lot of the ruins of which still remain because they were built in concrete to uh, last forever. (coughs) And, um, you can still go over there to this day and and uh, turn around and and see all of this bizarre infrastructure like built out you know seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And uh, so who was behind the whole people thing? No, most people have no idea what it is. Even people that hike out there, you know, they just uh, they know that there's these weird structures and stuff built out there, but they have no idea what what the history of it is.
1: Well, who was who was behind the whole thing? Who who were these people behind the whole thing?
2: Supposedly a family by the name of Murphy. It was uh, dubbed Murphy's Ranch. And uh, I don't know, it's very, the public records are very sketchy, apparently. And, um, you know, there were a number of, like, there were, like, two or three, like, top-named, uh, like, very renowned architects that worked on designing various buildings. Most of the buildings never got built. All of the infrastructure was done—the electrical system, the water system, sewer system, gas—you know, all all of the infrastructure was built. Uh, walkways, streets, retaining walls, staircases, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't get very far with building the actual structures. Some of which were going to be very elaborate, and uh, and they had brought in like these renowned, uh, you know, very well-known, uh, big-name architects to. Uh, Design these various structures that never got built, but uh, a lot, a lot, of the, a lot of the public records are, are apparently very, very uh, sketchy on the details, or, or the owners did a good job of, of hiding, you know, their uh, ownership in, in various ways. Yeah, that's weird.
1: It's very weird. The whole area sounds strange. Yeah. I'd like to go out there and check it out sometime and really dig into the.
2: It is very strange, and yeah, I get requests all the time from people who want to go tour Rustic Canyon or want to go uh, tour uh, Laurel Canyon and see some of these these places, and you know, see 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 what what's left of uh, various homes. Where you know uh, Jim Morrison's home is still standing, it's almost unrecognizable though, because I think there was a a fire or something, and the, the whole front facade has been rebuilt. Apparently on the inside it still looks very similar, but from the outside it's like unrecognizable. But um, yeah, a lot, a lot of these places are still there. You know, you can still uh, drive around and and see, uh, you know, the, the house where uh, Graham Nash and uh, Joni Mitchell lived, were immortalized in the song. Um, what is the song? Our house, I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah. To see us in, yeah, <clears throat> that that house is still in existence and. And various others still, uh, you know, still still standing to this day. And some of the people still live there. Some uh, there's still, uh, I think, uh, I think Frank Zappa's widow still uh, still lives in, in the family home there, and uh, you know, a few others uh, still still live uh, in the area.
1: Well, it was interesting too. You point out with like Frank Zappa and some of the other guys, they uh, even though they were considered sort of the leaders of the counterculture movement, they were really conservative dudes who actually didn't. Care for the whole counterculture movement. It's like a weird paradox in a way, which ties into the whole idea of maybe this whole thing was yeah. orchestrated.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's another. Yeah, it's definitely another weird uh, paradox that you know you have these people who are the icons of the uh, the hippie crowd who uh, who are at times openly contemptuous of, of the whole hippie movement, especially Frank Zappa. You know, I mean, he he was known to mock and ridicule the, the movement that he was one of the main people to spearhead. And, uh, you know, and, yeah, he was a very, very author- he was described by numerous people as a very, very authoritarian figure, very difficult to work with, you know, a musical genius, but very, very difficult to work with and very, very authoritarian and very conservative in his outlook. And same with Stephen Stills. He was described by a lot of people as having, like, a, a military bearing and just being a... A very authoritarian uh, type figure, and uh, quite a few of them are described in those terms. You know, I mean, they just—they don't seem to fit the pattern of you know, people who are supposed to be leading the, the, the flower child movement. You know, yeah, they're, they're pretty far removed in their personality and politics from from the people that they're leading.
1: Right, right. I think I, I don't know who you oh. quoted in the book, but someone was like ripping on people who rip their who tear up their draft cards and he was like, If you don't go and fight in the war then you're a coward or something It was like, Whoa dude, I thought you were I thought you were against the war. What's what's going on here? I'm all confused.
2: Yeah, yeah, some of yeah, some of these uh Bob Seeger, I mean probably it's long forgotten now that Bob Bob Seeger wrote a song, uh the ballad of the yellow berets which was uh berating um Draft dodgers as cowards. Um, the, so yeah, I mean, some of, some of these people just were outright didn't even disguise you know the fact that they uh, that they were not in alignment you know with the with with their their fans. Yeah, yeah. It's really like I said uh, when we first
1: started the conversation. You know, it makes you wonder if this whole sort of dirty hippie movement was injected into the whole thing and then. People thought they were listening to protest musicians, but like you point out in the book, like most of the songs aren't even protest songs. Like a couple of them really are, and, and then the ones that are called big protest songs, like for what it's worth, really don't sound like protest songs at all when you look at the lyrics and everything.
2: Yeah, and not even about what, I mean, most people assume that that was a commentary on the anti-war protest going on, but it actually wasn't at all. It was about, the song was written about the so-called riot on the Sunset Strip, which was a bunch of kids who were up in arms because one of their favorite clubs was closing down. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's strange that that has become sort of the anthem of the anti-war and, you know, one of the most iconic songs of the 60s when it actually had nothing whatsoever to do with the uh, with Vietnam War, the protests going on about it. And and also the fact that the guy who wrote it, Stephen Stills, later said, I think, what I don't remember the exact quote, but something to the effect of, I would never write another song like that. I think protest songs are stupid. Some, <laughs> some, I wish. I he said something like that. I wish I'd never written that because I think protest songs are stupid. Yeah. Okay. They have quotes from people like John Phillips saying we weren't a political band. We didn't. We never. We never injected politics into our music because our audience didn't want to hear that kind of stuff. And you're like, really? The the, the kids from the, <laughs> the yeah. didn't want to hear about that. Okay, if you say so. So yeah, I mean uh, yeah, there's. Uh, Yeah, like you really look at the lyrics and the songs and the quotes from these people, you you find that they weren't actually all that. Some of them deliberately avoided, uh, you know, any kind of political commentary, and and some of them were clearly on the other side of the fence from from where their fans were.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy that they, you know, that it all coalesced so well. (laughs) So you make does like I said, the whole. When you get to the end of the book and everything, you kind of look back on it all, and you really do. It adds an air of suspicion to the whole thing, where you're, you kind of wonder yourself, like, "Were were people taken for a ride here on all this?" And then it seems like the answer is yes, but you don't know who who was driving the ride, if you will.
2: It's very yeah. Weird. Well, that's the big question, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, if you go back to what we started out about, you know, I mean, to what extent were these people just useful idiots and, you know, unwilling dupes and, uh, you know. Uh, some of my I think, may have actually known what was going on. But um, I, I think, yeah, a lot of them were just, were just being played just as much as the, the American people in general were.
1: Yeah, well, it seems like some folks, like uh – you know, I have no idea, but, you know, like the guys who survived and lasted longest or sort of had the biggest names and stuff, may, they may have been the ones who kind of knew what was going on. And then you get the people who, you know, are kind of in obscurity now, like, uh, you know, Gene Clark or Grant Parsons. People kind of know Grand Parsons, but not even on the level of these big superstars and stuff. So it's, you know, you get people that kind of uh, were used and tossed aside and maybe others who, who kind of caught on to what was going on and, and played ball. So you kind of wonder.
2: Yeah, well, I certainly do, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of other people apparently do as well. So
1: one thing, this is a really small thing that stood out in the book. I wanted to ask you about though, because if I can get it on, you know, if we can if we can get this established on the record, I think it'd be great. You mentioned uh, someone, uh, a Manson girl, Nancy Pitman, who you say was introduced to the Manson family by actress Angela Lansbury. How how is there an Angela Lansbury Manson family connection that I didn't know about? And what
2: what is this, the Angela? Angela Lansbury's daughter actually was uh, one of the Manson girls for a time. She uh, rode with the uh, Manson family, and uh, she uh, she actually had a letter from her mother authorizing um, Charles Manson as her like legal guardian. I mean, she basically signed her daughter over, her underage daughter over to uh, to Charlie Manson to join his family gave him control over her, strangely enough, which, you know, kind obviously raises the question of how how the hell does that happen? I mean, how, how, how did Angela Lansbury obviously must have known, you know, uh, Manson on some level to do that. And, you know, how does she know this guy? How does she have connections <laughs> to this guy? And, you know, how did he have connections to so many other people as well? So, um, you know, and then you and then you get into the whole you know, Angela. You know, then of course Angela Lansbury was uh, one of the stars of uh, *Manchurian Candidate*. You know, which uh, you know br- brings that whole thing in because you know a number of people have, have uh, questioned whether Manson was in fact uh, you know along those lines. So it, 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 there's all kinds of weird, weird angles to the Charles Manson story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very, yeah, we're going to have to dig more into that, too, in the future. Now, another guy I want to ask you about, because... A
2: lot of musician, a lot of a lot of other people with musical ability in the family, you know, other than just Charlie, you know, I mentioned that Charlie was regarded as a talented singer-songwriter by, you know, Dennis Wilson and Neil Young and various other people, but uh, other members, you know, of the family, too, you know, Bobby Bozolet, like I said, was uh was was originally one of the, the rhythm guitarists for the band Love and um and then later worked uh with Kenneth Anger providing the uh, scores the soundtracks to uh at least one of his uh underground movies and then there were several other people in the uh, as well who were you know accomplished musicians or singers or whatever so um you know they they were they were very much a part of that uh of that whole scene. And, you know, as we said earlier, you know, the one or more of them could have, could have gone a completely different direction and, and be regarded in, you know, kind of the same light as like a Joni Mitchell or a Carol King or
0: something. <laughs> Strangely
2: yeah. enough, squeaky from, you know, could have ended up as, as the new Carol King, you know,
1: it's really, yeah, it's so. it's crazy. It's really crazy to think about. Well, you mentioned a guy I want to ask you about too, Kenneth Anger. What's the story with this guy? Cause he crops up a lot in these, and the occult fringes of rock and roll and and that kind of stuff, and uh, I never really heard much about him.
2: He's one of these guys that that a lot of people in the conspiracy community seem to kind of look up to and and, uh, sort of admire. I'm not really one of those. Uh, um, Yeah, he's, uh, you know, quote, unquote, he was or is. I think he's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive, recently.
1: Now he's still lobby day. He's a he? exper-
2: experimental filmmaker uh injected a lot of occultism into his films um you know which is hard to figure out just looking at the titles.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Lucifer Rising what <laughs> and uh and uh you know he he had weird connections, you know, he he was uh he was connected to the Church of Satan. He was close to Anton LaVey which you know and uh Bobby Bozolay, again same guy who we've been talking about was roomed with Kenneth Anger for a while. And, uh, you know, Susan Atkins came, uh, out of, uh, out of, uh, Anton LaVey's stable. So, you know, at least a couple of the Manson people were, were connected to, uh, to, uh, anger and the church of Satan. Uh, Vito Policus was, uh, connected to Kenneth Anger. Um, his son Godot who died under very unusual circumstances to say the least, uh, which is another weird aspect of the Vito polika story. Uh, <clears throat> but his son was originally, was originally slated to play the part that was later played by Bobby Bozilek. So, uh, Yeah, so you get get Kenneth Anger, you know, again, and and as I said at the beginning, you know, this this story is just like a series of loops, you know, you just keep going in circles. You're like, oh, okay, Vito's connected to Kenneth Anger, he's connected to Anton LaVey, he's connected to Bobby Bozolay, to back to, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You just keep going in these giant circles, you know, and. Everybody is connected to everybody, and yeah, Kenneth Anger is one of the people who provides uh, some, of, some of these uh, connections between these various people who you would not think would be connected, but they actually are.
1: It's pretty wild stuff. I really did enjoy the book yeah, quite a is. bit. It gave me a lot to think about and made you wonder really what was going on back then. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Kudos yeah. to you for really digging into this, because... Uh, I'd never like I said this is really fresh ground that I'd never really heard dug into before.
2: Yeah, it is. uh, It's very uh, yeah. uh, It's uh, it's fresh ground for for just about everybody. So um, (laughs) yeah, if any you know if anybody uh, heard anything in this interview that was of interest, I you know I think you would uh, you 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 may very well enjoy the book.
1: I don't suppose you've heard from any people who were sort of like on the fringes of the scene back then who've uh, added any extra insight into
2: what might have been going on. Have you? I get e- I get emails from people a lot that you know say they they were you know living the inner near the scene and they knew so and so and they did this and that but I never really know what to make of them I mean it's you know they're, they're very interesting anecdotal information but uh, you know I can't I you know I, there's no way to verify it you yeah. know I mean. Uh, anybody can be anybody they want on the internet and claim anything they want. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't even know who's sending these emails. They could be coming from Langley for all I know, you know, right, right. People, people will deliberately try to feed me bad information, hoping that I'll bite on it and then discredit myself, you know? So I have to be very careful about, you know, stuff that's just sort of personal anecdotes, you know, and this is a way to, to you know corroborate it in some way it's just an interesting piece of information that i can't really use
1: yeah now given what we've talked about too about sort of the dark creepy underbelly of uh, hollywood and and sort of the ritualistic stuff that goes on there and, and also possible intelligence connections did you ever sort of stop for a moment and be like you know i kind of shouldn't dig any further into this stuff i'm i'm sort of uh I'm getting into I'm getting into territory that maybe people don't want. I mean we're talking about how this is fresh stuff. Maybe maybe somebody out there doesn't want this stuff seeing the light of day and being looked at. So do you ever feel kinda uneasy about looking into this stuff?
2: Um sometimes, but not really. I mean, after working through the much darker stuff in the uh the program to kill book, you know, I mean uh yeah, if, if, if anything was going to ruffle any feathers, it, it would have been that. So, uh, yeah, after that, this, you know, this doesn't really seem uh, seem all that bad. I guess. <laughs> just, yeah, I, I don't. I don't really worry about that too much. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah,
1: well, I, you know, as I, even just reading the book, I was kind of like, ooh, I'm a little uneasy. <laughs> I'm a little shaken <laughs> up by uh, all this creepy stuff that's going on. Now you're working on the Lincoln stuff right now. What's is there? Is this going to be a book? You think eventually, or or, or what? What do you have a sort of a plan for for 2015?
2: I it might be. You know, I don't. I don't know. My original thought was to to, uh, to get it out uh, as a book, uh, timed with the uh, the big anniversary that's coming up, but. Uh, I obviously failed to do that, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, that's, yeah. My initial thought is the uh, this uh, what we're what is today February what twelfth? That's right, we're, yeah, February twelfth. We're, we're yeah, we're two months away from the big one hundred fiftieth anniversary. Uh, April fourteenth, twenty fifteen, will be one hundred fifty years to the day from when he was shot. So my initial thought was uh, to try to get it out possibly in book form uh, in time for the anniversary, which I'm sure is going to be a whole flood of stuff out there. There already is stuff coming out, you know, as, as we build up to it. You know, Lincoln's popping up everywhere. You know, he's already been in a couple of big, you know, big name movies and TV miniseries and uh, probably see quite a bit of him in the next uh, few months, uh, you know, as we pass the anniversary. So, that was my goal, but uh, I didn't even come <laughs> – I haven't even finished it as a web series, let alone started to put it together as a book. So I didn't <laughs> even come close to making that goal, but uh, it probably will uh, come out as a book at some nice. point. Uh, probably not this year, probably next year. Well, the
1: stuff uh, on the website is deep. I mean, people can really dig into that stuff on the website. uh i just I just spent my time reading read scenes inside the canyon, so I didn't get a chance to dig into all this stuff but i have a feeling I could spend at least a few weeks reading the stuff on there and like you said, it's free, so kudos to you man for putting it out there for free for people to uh yeah
2: there's a lot of read. there's a lot of stuff out there, so yeah it's um you know i would uh encourage people to uh you know if you're skeptical about my work uh you know go there and and check out some of the uh the uh, information that's freely available, and there's lots of it. And uh, if you like what you see, then, you know, maybe give my books a try.
1: Yeah, there's tons of good stuff on there. I was thinking, too, I didn't get a chance to mention this. Uh, we're coming near the end, but I had one more sort of thought uh, exercise, in a sense, where we talked about some of these people who their parents commit suicide. And you often hear about the idea of the mind control that they use sort of uh, – they, that they put people through this intense trauma. To take to to to, uh-huh. to enact a mind control. You wonder if there's some kind of connection there, where where people who want to control certain people in the population find these people whose parents committed suicide, because they know that they're already susceptible to some kind of uh, sway or influence.
2: Yeah, I kind of get that feeling. I mean, I. Uh i didn't I didn't get into a lot of that stuff very explicitly in this book for one reason because i' I'm trying to reach a little bit broader audience instead of uh quote unquote preaching to the choir right and uh you know certain topics it's just you know they come up and people just their eyes roll back in their head and they pretty much heard all they want to hear you know they're done <laughs> and uh so I put you know a lot of this stuff is in there that. People who are in the know, you know, that know, you know, that, that are fairly knowledgeable about the conspiracy world, will know the significance of, you know, these facts and figures and dates, and and other people, you know, probably less so. Yeah. So I, I try to kind of walk a fine line to, uh, you know, to give my core you know audience what they expect and and hopefully try to reach a little bit broader audience instead of just you know preaching to the choir so anyway my dog is acting up yeah your dog sees been on the phone
0: yeah yeah she he's she ready for on the, the walk too long
1: <laughs> well we almost we're almost gonna let you go i want to thank the folks who tuned in live on the show thank you very much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you for putting up with the technical problems at the beginning. Luckily we solved all hey,
2: that. So it's rock- no we got problem. Off rocky Thanks
1: rocky start there, but it's has No
2: problem. Thanks for putting up with my dog and uh No, ah, no, no. I and, told you uh, it's a laid
1: back show, so we're we're all good. And
2: uh <laughs> folks can find out more well, from- Yeah, I'm uh, happy to come back any time. You know, if you uh, look over my website or my other books and find something that catches your interest, uh yeah, <laughs> let me Yeah, yeah. Well, and folks Check what it out that? at
1: davesweb.cnchost.com. We got to work on getting you a regular URL, Dave.
0: What, what was that? Ninety seconds. The British lady. On,
1: she, she's telling us we got ninety seconds left in the show. Oh, okay. She's like my. She's like my robot producer. But uh, only only you and I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> only you and I can hear her. So here she comes again. Oh. Wow. Like, come on in a minute. It's all good. It's all good. Like I said, it's uh. There she is. It's uh, davesweb.cnchost.com, also worldheadpress.com, right? That's uh, the website. That's my publisher, yeah, correct. That's the publisher. Yeah. And I want to thank Jeff Mattis from Facebook who recommended you as a guest on the show. He said, uh, check out Dave McGowan's stuff. So I did, and I want to thank him for recommending you.
2: I will thank him as well. I'm not sure I know who he is, but I will thank him. <laughs>
1: there you go. And also, they can find out you're on you're on Facebook with the Weird Scenes page, right? So people just punch in Weird Scenes. Yeah,
2: it's www.facebook.com and then Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Oh. All is one word with no punctuation, and uh, that's where I'm. Putting updates and new information, and just information of general interest, and uh, notifications of any interviews and links. Like if you send me a link to this interview, I'll I'll put that up there. And uh, so anything connected to the book goes up there, and all the images, a lot of pictures and whatnot. uh, You know, to to help kind of flesh out the story.
0: Yeah,
1: that's all on
2: on the uh, Facebook page. Awesome, awesome. Well,
1: like I said, Dave, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for. dealing with the rocky start but I really did love the conversation. I absolutely loved the book. I thought it was absolutely fantastic and I think folks should go out and pick it up. I said like I said at the very beginning of the conversation, I'm kicking myself cuz I'm going on vacation next week and I really <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a book this good to read next week. That's how good it is. So, folks, go out and pick well, up thank Weird you. Scenes. Thank
2: you very much.
1: Absolutely, my friend. Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Dave McGowan, the author, you just heard from him here for the last couple of hours. Big thanks again, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend.
2: Thank you for having me, and I look forward to doing it again.
1: Absolutely. There you go, folks. That was Dave McGowan. The book is Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Absolutely fantastic work from Dave. Go out and pick it up, folks. It is really, really something else. Here we are on episode two of season nine. So we've got... Quite a ways to go throughout Season 9. This was the first live edition of the program. Sorry for the rocky start, although if you're listening on the MP3, we've cleaned it all up. Uh, I don't know what happened there. Just complete madness and and typical for the start of Season 9. Hope you all enjoyed the season premiere with Jim Mars. Tonight's episode with Dave McGowan. As I alluded to, I'll be heading out on vacation next week, so there will be no edition of BOA Audio next week. Looking to come back at you on February 26th, so two weeks from tonight, either with a live edition of the program, I've got some folks lined up for a future live installment of the show, or a taped episode. We've got a couple of episodes that we taped in January, and actually taped one a couple of days ago. Both are tremendous editions of BOA Audio that I cannot wait to unleash on the listener's there's not really much else to say. If you're listening to the program here on Blog Talk, this is Banal of America Audio. You can find out more from us at BenalofAmerica.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America. That'll bring up the website for BOA on Facebook. There we kind of post the latest news on the show, what's going on, where you can find out more from us, who the next guest is, all that good stuff. We try to update that ASAP. And the show, much like Dave's website, is absolutely free. And we do that via donations from the BOA listeners. A lot of folks stepped up to the plate at the end of Season 8, but we could always use more help, folks. So if you could help us out, please make a donation to Banal of America. There's a pair of ways you can do so. Head on over to BOA, click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. If you don't trust the PayPal... You can also donate to the P.O. Box, and the address for that is at Banal of America as well. Uh, Let me see. I think that's all we have here to plug at the end of the show. As I said, going on vacation next week, I haven't really had a chance to talk to folks uh, on the program here. We didn't do an end cap for the season premiere. I think I'm going to move away from the pre-taped intros and outros that have been a part of BOA for so long because they just feel outdated in this age of the live episodes of Banal of America. Feels like it kind of makes those taped shows feel a little more stale. So we're, we're going to move away from the, from the taped end caps and just focus on talking to folks here at the end of the show. I don't know if we'll bring back the listener feedback, but if we do, it's going to be on these live installments of the program. Going on vacation next week, heading down to Savannah, Georgia. So if there's any folks down in Savannah, Georgia, get in touch. Maybe we'll grab a beer or something like that. It's a pure vacation, my first real, honest-to-goodness vacation in, like, seven years. So I'm really looking forward to it, really looking forward to just kicking back, relaxing, hitting up some restaurants, hitting up some sites. I might do a ghost tour down in Savannah, so that'll be a lot of fun if I can find the right ghost tour. But look at me. I'm so cynical. How am I going to enjoy a ghost tour? I don't even know. But it'll be a lot of fun if I can find one that doesn't drive me bonkers for being too much of a ghost tour. So I will update, folks, on all that good stuff. Pictures from the vacation will likely be posted on our Facebook. Information on who the next guest will be on BOA will be found at all of America and BOA on Facebook probably sometime around uh, 10 days from now or so. Yeah, I'd say. Today's the 12th, so maybe the 24th of February when I get back. We'll post some info on who the next guest on BOA Audio is. And then from there, I don't expect we'll miss too many weeks with new installments of the show because we have, as I said, a couple of shows in the can. Very, very good shows, very good guests. I don't want to say too much about those, but they are coming up very, very soon. And with all that said... We'll wrap it up here, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome back to the BOA Audio Experience. As we say, no commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, no comparison. And as always, an enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners here, listening in 2015, nearly 10 years after we kicked off this ragged little program. We are still kicking unbelievable stuff thank you so much for your enduring support of this program and thank you for making boa audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist until next time this is tim at all thanking you for listening and signing off